I think a lot of us get stuck in, am I going to be able to come? Is my partner going to be able to come? Well, am I going to last long enough? Am I, is my partner disappointed with how long I'm lasting? Am I lasting too long? And did I make it weird? Like what I think all of these answers of how am I doing sex wrong is, or like the, the concentration on like, am I doing it wrong? What should I be doing more? How can I make it good? Gets us all really wound up versus like the ultimate question is just, do you and your partner feel nice right now? <laughs> like that's it. Yeah. Nice Work, a podcast of the Super Nice Club, where we're just trying to make the world 10% nicer, which I think, I'm betting you can agree, we really need to do. You know, we just need to be a lot nicer. We need to be a lot smarter. ASAP. And that doesn't really mean pretend nice, this sort of Southern hospitality stuff. It means really listening, really building our empathy and, and Kegel muscles. You know, really understanding that not one of us is right about everything. Humility. Humility. Let's order up a lot more of that. That'll go a long way towards a nicer world. Uh, today's guest is none other than the sex and relationships advice columnist for Bustle and GQ, Sophia Benoit. She's also the author of Well, This is Exhausting, which is a collection of extremely personal and absurdly funny essays about Sophia's life, her dating life, her sex life, her life as a writer, uh, growing up struggling with obesity issues, uh, GMA.com, which I assume is uh, uh, Good Morning America? That's a TV thing, right? I had this to say about the book. Humorist, Twitter star, and GQ columnist Sophia Benoit tracks her journey from classic good girl to feminist as she examines how to be good these days. Weaving in anxiety, dating, reality TV, and more, these essays pack a memoiristic punch. And they do. It's a great book. Uh, We get into the book, obviously. This is a book that you should check out. You can check it out right now if you want. Just hit pause and order it, you know, um, wait for it to arrive in a week or so. Don't cheat. Don't order on Amazon because A, you don't need anything in two days, overnight, whatever. And B, making Jeff Bezos richer is a terrible idea. Not nice. Um, Anyways, when you get the book, then unpause this, finish up this podcast, and make it so you can read along with us. Plus, laugh. You know, read along and laugh at all the truly awkward moments Sophia relates in her book. Uh, You'll probably cry a little bit. Uh, but mostly you'll just appreciate her honest self-reflection in candor in a world where I don't think either are really appreciated enough. I'm not talking about Sheryl Sandberg type of candor either. That's gross, if you know what I'm talking about. Anyway, I guess I'll have to put it out there that this episode is not safe for work if your work involves kids or like real prudish co-workers who blush at words like butt plug or fucking or prostate or fucking with a butt plug while prostrate to tickle the prostate. Yeah. Or Sophia's very favorite word, nipples. Nipples, nipples, nipples. Big ones, small ones, white ones, brown ones. Nipples. She loves that word, which reminds me, you should check out Nice Work episode number nine with Marnie Alaba, author of the powerful, powerful book about her breast cancer journal entitled, Mostly I Just Miss My... 
nipples. Okay, yeah. Oh, this is episode 96, which, if you don't know the song 96 Tears, total solid jam, sleeper number one hit by the one hit wonders, question mark, and the Mysterians. Love this song. It's great. You hear it? Playing it on my phone right now. What a coincidence. Okay, you ready for this? Uh, turn off everything else, tune out the rest of the world, and drop in to nice work with the rather wonderful Sophia Benoit. Sophia, Sophia Benoit, welcome to Nice Work Podcast. Great to have you on. Good morning. You're in LA, right? I am in LA. Thank you so much okay. for having me. What part of town are you in? I am near Highland Park. I'm in Cypress Park. Oh, Cypress Park. All right. I've only been in LA two years and it's mostly been COVID. So Cypress Park is new to me. What's Cypress Park? It is just like a little bit north of downtown over on the east side. Yeah. Right. Highland Park. So it's, is it adjacent or is it a yeah, subset of Highland Park? It's adjacent to Highland Park. Yeah. Okay. That's the thing that most people don't really get about LA is it's like, it's mostly just parks here. It's mostly you know, parks. Echo Park, Highland Park, Cypress Park. It's yeah, yeah. beautiful. The pictures you see on online and don't trust online folks of like LA is a bunch of tall buildings. No, nah, it's mostly just green trees. And it's lush here. It's kind of swampy. It's yeah. wonderful. I love this yeah. city. So I do too. I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan of Los Angeles. Been working out of here for years and I'm very happy to finally be here. Um, any LA haters out there? Yeah. Come visit. I'll show you a good time. Um, so welcome to the cast. You're doing a lot of stuff. You have a new book out, which we're going to talk about. You also have a new gig as a sex and relationships columnist for Bustle, right? But you've been doing that same role, or is it the same title at GQ? Yeah, basically, yeah. For both of them, I have similar similar job titles. I cover sex and relationships, some lifestyle stuff. Basically, anything horny, they usually just give to me, so... How did that come about? Like, how do you get the reputation? Like, oh, you know, we need somebody who can do uh, sex stuff. It's it's that Sophia. Or is there, um, a, is there a small cadre of folks and you're all kind of competing for the same gigs? I think there are certain people that also specialize in the same topics. I think the way I got started at GQ, I think, was mostly because I talked about a lot of sexual things on my own Twitter, uh, mostly just jokes. But I think people the editors at GQ were looking for someone who could write uh, maybe like one or two funny articles. And then they were looking for a new sex writer and they asked if I had any interest and it kind of snowballed from there. And I love telling people what to do and giving advice. So <laughs> it was a pretty easy gig. Is our sex columnists always women? No, I do think that there's like a preponderance of women in the, in that sphere. And same with, advice columnists in general, I think are overwhelmingly women and specifically white women, which is to mm -hmm. the genre's own detriment, I think. Um, but they're definitely, I mean, even like one of the most famous sex columnists and advice givers is Dan Savage, who, you know, he's been in the game. Oh yeah. Very long time, about him. So. yeah. And there's a lot of space for a really great male sex columnist or non-binary sex columnist, but. I don't know if you can see this. <laughs> I've been carrying this around for 15 years. Every cafe I go to doesn't usually get into sex talk. I'm, I'm sorry. This is an audio podcast, folks. I'm holding up a plaque that says free advice, any topic. And if you know me, you've seen me with this, with this plaque. It's amazing what strangers will just unload onto someone who's just there to give advice. It really is. It floors me every time, uh, especially if they see you in real life. Do you ever do anything where uh, it's not, 
remote where your advice, have you ever done any sort of promotional things or stunts where you're giving it in person? Um, not professionally, but if you've been my friend or sibling, <laughs> you've probably gotten a lot of advice from me, whether uh, asked for or not. <laughs> <laughs> I went down a rabbit hole and, and read a bunch of your articles and advice columns, um, current and archival. And there's a lot of funny stuff in there. We could dedicate a whole podcast to it. But before we jump into a couple of the, my my favorites, let's really jump into your book, which is still, I'm going to call it, it's still fresh. It's still under a year old, right? It is under a year old. Yeah. yeah so it's still hot off the presses. So smell, I love the smell of books. Oh, it's Always okay. love the smell of books. There's so many books in this garage and I need more bookshelves. Anyway, the book is, well, this is exhausting. Essays. They're essays. It's a book about you. This is yeah. a collection of essays about you. And before I forget, folks, we're going to talk about this book for a bit. Uh, as always, with our guests, uh, Super Nice Club gives a 100% money back guarantee on books uh, because we're not going to put a guest on here unless we like their book, unless we believe in the writing. And I am personally a snob when it comes to writing and when it comes to books. I'm a hardcover book snob. I'm the worst. <laughs> and so, yeah, if you try Sophia's book and you're like, ah, this, this isn't for me, that's cool. We'll buy it from you. Whatever you paid for it, we'll pay you for it. You just have to ship it to us and then we will re-gift it. We'll find another home for it. This, this, I mean, this isn't a forever offer. If you're listening to this in 50 years, you know, there's going to be some limitations on it, but um, yeah, we'll guarantee the first uh, 20 copies. There's no way in hell 20 people are going to read it and not like it though. Now that said, that said, folks, the book is colorful. All right. It's a colorful book. It's, um, it's got some spicy language. It's really funny. It's really genuine. It's really heartfelt. But it's also full of sex and the C word and wholly <laughs> appropriate, but I think considered by by prudes or, or, or woefully conditioned humans, inappropriate candor. All right. So this is a book about Sophia's life, about her sex life, about social uh, mores and expectations around sex, sensuality, about being a, a young woman, girl, woman. So some of you might blush a little reading it. If, if you feel like that's you, you're the one who I really want to buy this book. Okay. <laughs> you're the one who I really want to check it out and get uncomfortable. Go, I can't believe she's being so naked about these experiences. Yes, because that's what, to me, is no small part of a nicer world. If we can all be more like that and more open about something as fundamental as sex. So buy the book. Uh, well, this is exhausting. You can just type the name into the uh, interwebs or click on the, the, the links in the show notes. If you can buy it from a local bookstore, that would be even more awesome. You'll pay a little bit more than you do through Amazon. You might even pay a lot more, but if you can afford it, you'll be keeping a local bookstore in your community, which makes your community way better and probably is good for your property values if you want to be totally self-serving. Okay. Free money back guarantee spiel over. You wrote the book. It came out last year. How do you feel having a book out there? Um, I think it, it's kind of a weird experience, especially in the pandemic, because it was so like you didn't, I didn't have book events in person. I didn't really do anything. And I had also kind of written it and finished it before the pandemic. And then I was met with all this free time because the job I was on ended because of the pandemic, it was a TV show and it got canceled, which was fine. Um, but I kind of sat around doing nothing and, uh, for a little bit and I, then had this big thing come out and 
then I didn't see anyone or do anything for it. So it was a kind of a weird uh, feeling. There wasn't as much maybe momentum for myself personally coming out of it. Mm -hmm. People would be like, oh, how do you feel about this? Are you so excited? And I was like, well, I don't know. I've been working on this thing for two years and now I'm just, now it's just out there. Um, So it, it took me a little bit to get used to talking to people about it and to get used to um, like how to feel about this book. Cause I felt like I wrote it. It was done for a while. Like when you finish a book, it doesn't come out again. Like the last time you see it. And then the first time it comes out, those are months and months apart. So it's hard. Right. To like, you know, it, it's a little bit like, Oh yeah. I wrote, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. What do you know? <laughs> so I was just looking for the publisher. It's gallery. I thought mm-hmm. it might be an imprint of something larger, but gallery is the publisher, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Gallery, if you're listening, here's a cool idea, and it costs you way less money than a new book. Remarket your COVID era books. Like, just do it again. Do well, a do over. There's going to be so the uh, paperback is coming out in June of this year. Uh, okay. So in a few months. So maybe there will be a little bit of a, a new marketing brush. But even from, I mean, it's just it's a weird thing to talk about a thing you made, but it's also really weird when that thing you made is about you because then it's mm-hmm. kind of like you're just talking to people and they'll be like oh yeah so I heard about your divorced parents or whatever and I'm like oh I guess you know a lot about me <laughs> you know yeah and that's true you I mean you really do put yourself out there yeah a little bit just just a little bit, a little bit. Book. unless you're making it all up which would be awesome too <laughs> so a, a lot of the book is about and correct me when I mischaracterize you or mischaracterize your book. You're like, you clearly skimmed it too fast, Todd. Shut up. Um, Seriously, jump in. But a lot of the book is about your struggles um, becoming, becoming a kid, becoming a teen, becoming an adult. Uh, Did the process of writing this uh, help you settle any of the like old scores or come to terms with things or did it just piss you off that the world around you created all these struggles with these insane expectations and, and ceaseless objectifications how, how did you feel writing it well I think it was very interesting to go backwards and write about things that were emotional at the time but that no longer feel as palpably emotional um and I feel like in so many ways I'm over them so mm-hmm. in a little in, in a lot of ways, it was very, um, it was kind of like, oh, let's reopen this old thing and think about this painful past experience, which maybe you haven't been thinking about or, um, you know, examining or, you know, feeling anything about for years and years. And then there was also the fact that a lot of this was going to open things up for other people in my life of like my parents or friends of mine, or even just like, old crushes that could probably identify themselves. <laughs> like, I think a lot of it was just like, okay, I guess I'm going to lay this all out here and uh, hope for the best. And then again, it's kind of hermetically sealed for a few months at least. And from the time I first wrote some of these things, it was, you know, dormant for years as this project was in a, in a certain sense. And then it came out and then everyone else has these reactions to it where you're like, oh yeah, well, I am over that, by the way. Like, I'm not still upset about this. Um, but, like, a lot of my family members were like, oh, reading this made me really sad at certain times. And I was like, yeah, but I'm I'm okay now. It's fine. It's fine. Um, but I also think, like, one of the starkest examples of, um, like, how writing 
felt was that I went back when I, for the college years, I knew I had journals because I had been writing journals partially for a class, but I kind of wrote a lot and wrote it down and it it was very messy and I never reread them and I just put them in a closet and I looked back at those journals to get facts almost to get, you know, what, what, am I misremembering this or not that I was completely correct at the time when I wrote down either, but at least like what did then Sophia think? Um, and I think I have a tendency to really feel like college was so much fun and I was having a great time and I was so happy and I was, you know, free of anxiety and worry and just, you know, a mess, but fun. And then I read these journals again and I was like, oh no, you've always been kind of an anxious, weird wreck who is overly emotional about things. <laughs> and like, oh, okay, okay. This is, it, you really haven't changed at all. <laughs> so, so yeah, that's, I mean, we, hopefully that's a self-preservation tactic that most of us employ, right? We don't want to remember things yeah. terribly. You know, we <laughs> want to, re- unfortunately that can also get us to go back to old relationships, you know, and we shouldn't like, no, 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 no. There's <laughs> a reason why you're not together anymore. Um, so you're still young. It hasn't been that long, just you know, not even a whole generation, but do you feel like it's, it's easier or harder for today's, you know, teenage women when it comes to social expectations out there? Um, I think... It would be the same. I think it's probably pretty similar, big picture. I think there's always going to be details that make things harder. And I think, I mean, everyone looks at the internet and social media for things like that. And I think in a, in small ways, those things make everybody's life harder and everyone's teenage years harder. And I definitely, I mean, I have guess my space and Facebook were around when I was a young teenager. Um, and I think those things do make things harder from a, a sense of image and crafting a self that you put into the world, which is a very weird and uh, dumb thing that we all do or have to do or have to opt out of if we don't do. Um, but I think that's already hard. But I do think um, to kind of blow the picture up or zoom out a little bit. I also think things like misinformation on the internet and uh, just like just the technology of editing things or um, also just how much harder the world's getting. I think, you know, it's one thing to be a teenager and be like, I'm worried about being overweight, which was one of my big worries as a teenager. Um, Not that being overweight is a bad thing, which I very much address in the book, but um, I felt at the time that it was, I was wrong. I was a teenager. I was dumb, but that's okay. Um, but, you know, I did, I wasn't sitting around worried about like global warming and I'm an overweight teenager. And now I think like, right. you know, I think, I think life has gotten harder for teens these days. And so I don't know that it's necessarily just like these minute societal moments or like things like, oh, is Instagram filters warping everyone's brain. I mean, maybe they are, but also like, look at where we're at in the world with Ukraine, you know, like there's so much stress. So I do think being a teenager is harder in that sense, you know? Yeah. And you, you talk a lot about, well, I mean, your intro, you talk about when you're a teen, you're like this, all these issues you had with being overweight, feeling overweight, the pressures around you, how other people looked at you. And I know that resonates with a lot of people because a lot of people are overweight, especially when they're younger, especially when they're younger, right? You know, you're going through all of that and it's it's funny. It's also painful to read because you're like, oh, so, you know, you, I, like, I have kids. I just know like when I went through school, 
just how much I hated so much of school because of body image issues, because of being made fun of. And I went to so many different schools. So it started over at every, at every school, right? And you're like, yeah, okay, I've heard those jokes before, bro. Like, come up with something, bring me, bring me something new at least. And uh, I feel for all the kids out there because kids aren't, I don't think it's fair to say they're mean. You know, they're not trying to crush somebody's soul. They're just, they're just figuring it out too. They're figuring out how words work, how hurt works, how, you know, they don't really know what they're doing when they're being cutting to each other, right? They're perpetuating what's out there in the larger society. They're perpetuating the jokes that they, that they watch, that they see on TV. And that's where I keep getting fascinated with, and it comes up in these podcasts again and again lately, the power of, of storytellers, of the writers, of the people making TV, of the people making movies to create different types of you know, high school comedies, mm-hmm. to create different types of school year TV shows. Do you feel... Now that you have this book out where you talk about the things that you went through, and it's not just weight, you have other other issues. We all go through so many our whole lives, <laughs> full of insecurities. They never stop. Does that come to mind when you're when you're on a show or when you're writing, when you're doing things like, hey, I would love to to insert, I don't want to say, I guess healthier, but I don't mean it in sort of like a gee golly, nothing can be funny or or you know, sharp edged. But does, do you feel like there, there's kind of a responsibility there for you? I think the thing that I want when I write fictional characters rather than when I write an advice column or an article um, or anything else, I think the thing that I really want to do, or at least my instinct is rather than to give this idealized version of what could be great if we all got on board and were nice to each other, which would be fantastic. But I also think like you alluded to, it's not just kids saying mean things. It's also, you know, you've got the media has these examples and biases built into it. And then you have adults in your life with these biases and meanness built into them, you know, so you you have these worlds. And I, I guess part of me doesn't ever want to create a character that is just, if we take the example of a fat character or a fat teenage girl, I don't want it to, I don't want to write a character who is never insecure about being fat Mm -hmm. or is never facing any fat phobia or even internalized fat phobia, because I just don't think that that's the truth. I mean, there, there probably is someone out there who has completely accepted who they are as a teenager and is like, I'm beyond insecurities. And I hope I meet that person someday. <laughs> and I'm so excited. And I hope that they write into me and are like, you're so wrong. Um, but in the meantime, I think in some ways, it's almost more helpful as we move forward as a society to get away from fat phobia or whatever the other versions of hate are. Um I think it's still really helpful to show the internal world of someone who is grappling with that and going up against that rather than pretending that it doesn't exist or rather than giving an example of this fake, you know, halcyon, beautiful world where no one's fat phobic and it's not right. harder to be fat. And because it is like, it is harder to be fat. So I'd much rather someone get these, like, I guess as a teenager, I would have loved to see way more examples of different worlds and different realities and different insecurities and different skills and like just a much more nuanced and encompassing, you know, media portrayal of what being fat could look like. But I don't need it to be only 
idealistic. I need it to be true. And I need to be like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm not alone. You know, Mm -hmm. it's relatable. And what you just said that I'm not alone is such a powerful moment. And you write about it in your book. You write about a time when um, I don't know who it was, but a woman was like uh, pointed out to you that she was addicted to food. And you're like, oh, that's it. That's how I am. I'm not like loving the food. I'm just addicted. I just can't. I literally can't stop. I literally can't stop. And somebody else finally pointed that out to you after going to counseling for years and talking to different people for years, right? Doctors who were just inane. And this woman finally had this relatable moment to you. You're like, oh, there's someone else with the same thing. I feel much more normal now. Didn't mean the thing went away right away, but it meant that you, from what I read anyway, that was a big step on your path. You can, and, and, and books, right? And TV shows and movies offer the same thing to us. We find characters in our lives, if we're driven to, to fiction, that we're like, ah, oh, you know, I just really relate to so-and-so in this book. And they were kind of one of my heroes growing up, right? No, I think, I do think, I mean, when I write advice columns to people, I think the thing that comes up in almost all of them is, yeah, you're normal. And this is, I mean, not that norm, normal is the only thing to strive for or a good thing or a moral thing, but you're not alone. This is a thing that so many people go through. I cannot tell you how often I'm simply just telling people, yeah, no, a ton of other people are writing in about that or wondering about that or insecure about that or uh, like hanging on to this or they're sad about it. And the same things come up over and over again for everyone. And so many of us are convinced that not that we're the only one that feels that way. I think on a logical level, we know that other people feel that way about this. Um, I mean, I certainly as an overweight kid didn't feel like, oh, no other overweight kid has ever felt this way. Um, It just is more like when you actually find someone and get to talk to them about it, that's sometimes like the real connective feeling is you're like, Mm -hmm. oh, yeah, we have this shorthand. We have this overlap. We have these like similarities that it feels almost relaxing to be around a person that's gone through that because you're like, okay, yes, yes, I got it. Absolutely. And you know, there's a character from, from my youth that I just, when I, when I read his story in a book, I'm like, that person gets me like a lonely white kid that needs to go on an adventure. His name is Milo from the Phantom Tollbooth really resonated with me. Um, in in the intro to her book, it's, it's a quote unquote intro. Sophia mentions the Phantom Tollbooth in a funny way. So I had to bring out my copy. And when I found my copy, I actually, Realize that the inscription on here, June 23rd, 1993, this is from me to my dad. I found this in my dad's apartment after he died. Dad, one of my favorite books, you'll like it. If not, you're too grown up with love, Todd. <laughs> so when my dad was 70, I gave him a copy of Phantom Tollbooth. I don't think he ever read it. He never opened anything I gave him, but um, I, <laughs> I gave it a shot. So uh, anyway, that was an in-joke. I don't know. if it, How do you think it went? No, I like that. Because they can't see it. They hadn't read it. Anyway, tell you what, folks, when you buy the money back guaranteed book of, well, this is exhausting, and you get a couple of copies for your friends so that you can all read it and relate and have shorthand around why you appreciate it, <laughs> um, you will get the Phantom Tollbooth joke. Okay? <laughs> Until then, eh, It's a fabulous book. It's a fabulous book. <laughs> okay, so you wrote the book. It's out there. It's percolating. It's got a lot of great reviews. The The buzz is good. Unfortunately, it hit during uh, uh, COVID, but you've got the paperback coming out. In the meantime, you're doing the Bustle Advice columnist. You're doing the GQ Sex Lives article. And the GQ Sex Lives article, uh, oh, 
And you're also doing your here's the thing advice that's, on Substack. That's, yeah, I've been I've been kind of holding off on that because I, I yeah. got too many jobs that were paying me money, which is great, but I couldn't keep doing I couldn't justify doing something for free when I was so stressed out. I was like, I have to cut something here. So So the, the Substack is it, Yeah, I was capitalistic. I was well, before the Substack dies, I'm going to, there's a one piece on here that I think is just great. You're responding to a woman who's asking for help getting over a crush. And you say, being in steady, committed love with no disruptions is not the only worthwhile thing. Contentedness is not the only worthwhile feeling. Feeling lost, sad, unwanted, horny, raw, lonely, and hopeful. Those are part of being alive. Even though some of those feelings suck or are uncomfortable, you don't have to rush through them in an attempt not to feel them. You don't need to get over this guy as fast as possible. There's no reward for that. There's no prize waiting in the afterlife for people who moved on from people they were into quickly. And there's more to it. There's a lot more to your advice there. This is just an aside, but I love this aside. I just think it's such a great reminder to people that it's okay to feel, right? We're just so often trying to escape, like, I'm sad. It's, it's all right. That's awesome, actually. You know, if you're feeling... It's, that's a beautiful thing. Yeah, I think a huge um, part of that is that I think we're kind of overly trained to operate on a high level for work or school and to not be mm. like to, to function as a, in a way that isn't a disruption to anyone else around us or to the workflow or to, you know, again, the wor- world at large. And I think there's like there's just not that much room or time for the average person to just go wallow in their bed and eat like so many thin mints and have it not be seen as completely indulgent and completely derailing or disruptive or to even just be able to afford to do that, I think is kind of hard for a lot of people. So I think a lot of us got get really good at putting on this face of everything's fine. I'm okay. Yeah. I broke up with my boyfriend two days ago, but I'm fine. I can make it through this or whatever it is just kind of as like a survival tactic of, you know, again, like you have to show up to class the next day or you have to go to work the next day or whatever it is. And it's very responsible, I guess, in a certain way. Uh, And also it's often not a choice, but it's also like trained us, I think against some of our more emotional proclivities. I like think we should, I think it's nice sometimes to be overwhelmingly just so sad about a crush not working out. Like that is a nice thing that you get to be alive and feel that. That's wonderful. That's, I mean, it's fantastic. Mm -hmm. It sucks, but it's also just like how cool that you are in this moment. Like wonderful. It is. I think a lot of people out there can remember, or maybe they are, they're going through it currently, like your breakup playlists, your go-to songs when you're going through the worst and you know you're old when those songs come on and they don't still hit you a little bit. That's <laughs> when you know that you're doing something wrong. Like, oh yeah, that used to be one of my breakup songs, and whatever. Um, and those times when you were when you were sort of, if you want to call it wallowing, although that's a negative connotation, uh, when you were in it, when you're in the feelings, you're playing your music. You know, they're also so. It's such a reset and refresh, and you always, all of a sudden, come out of it. Like there's this moment. And most, you know, you can remember it like, oh, and then all of a sudden I was better. And then it's just such a beautiful, strong feeling of self and clarity. And then you fuck it all up again later with yeah. somebody else. Yeah, yeah. But, but, <laughs> but in those, in those, 
the interstitial, right? Like yes. where you're clear. It's it's amazing. And it's only because you felt so much. Yeah. Right? I, mean, I think when you have those really deep feelings, it's hard to not become really self-centered. I don't mean that in such a negative way. I know that has a negative connotation often, but you become, it really, everything kind of collapses in on you in those moments. Those like really hard moments of your life, whether it's grief or loss, or a lot of it just becomes about you because you're just surviving them in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. But like you said, those are really often opportunities to learn a lot about yourself of like what mattered, what went wrong, what are you, what are your patterns? What are your desires? What do you miss about this situation or person? What are you angry about? Like those things that you get to learn about yourself are so much more edifying. I think in those really high emotion moments than they are when you're just content. I think you can learn stuff from being content too, but it's a little harder. I think if you're not, and the same is true for when you're very, very happy and ecstatic too. I think, you know, you learn about yourself too, but it's nice sometimes to just be very self-absorbed and into your own feelings. That's, it's pleasant sometimes. I agree. I think there's a definite time and a place to be selfish and have selfish be a positive word. Yeah. Um, slight downshift. There's an article you wrote in GQ. This is a more recent one. Great title. Definite clickbait. Penis numbing products are probably not what your sex game needs. They'll make you last longer in bed, yes, but the goal should be better sex, not longer sex. Um, can we get into that a little bit? Like this idea of um, super nice sex, quality versus quantity. You know, what have you learned in your time as a as a sex expert? So I just wrote an article for Bustle actually, where they asked me, "Can you think of all the?" advice column questions that you've gotten and what do you think are the biggest mistakes people are making? And the number one thing I think I said was that I think people over-focus on orgasming as like the end all be all of sex. Um, And obviously very pro-orgasm, great, please orgasm. Everyone deserves to, it's wonderful, lovely. But I think we all got taught this lesson that sex is about one moment, like this one specific moment and everything else is like a build to that moment or in service of that moment. And that's it, which is cool if you're having a quickie or whatever, but there's so much more there. And when you allow yourself to be much more present in the moment and much more Mm -hmm. focused on how is this moment specifically a nice thing that I'm doing to steal a word from the super nice club. How is this a enjoyable? Yeah, we, we own, we own the word nice. Yeah. You do. Uh, <laughs> how is yeah. this a nice feeling or how is this fun or how is it funny or how is it pleasurable or is it not? And then we should try something else. Um, I think a lot of us get stuck in, am I going to be able to come? Is my partner going to be able to come? Is or in the case of this article, am I going to last long enough? Am I, is my partner disappointed with how long I'm lasting? Am I lasting too long? And did I make it weird? Like what, I think all of these answers of how am I doing sex wrong is, or like the, the concentration on like, am I doing it wrong? What should I be doing more? How can I make it good? Gets us all really wound up versus like the ultimate question is just, do you and your partner feel nice right now? <laughs> like that's it. Yeah. That's just like, are yeah. you having a nice time? It's the same thing for like, if you went and played like tennis at the park, there's not like a, a culmination of that. It's just a nice thing you're doing with someone. 
you doesn't like it's not it doesn't have to build toward a specific thing like great if it does wonderful but you're hanging out with the person and hopefully it feels great you know yeah just get out of your head folks no pun uh get out of your head folks um <laughs> yeah you shouldn't be thinking about sex while you're having sex I, would, I mean that would seem to be a really bad combination yeah um at the same time you know i wonder if and i'm not i'm not in any way anti-porn or pro porn it's just a thing and if it's cool for you that's awesome if it's not that's awesome too but sometimes i wonder if if uh not sometimes very rarely probably mostly just you know getting ready to talk with you <laughs> if porn has helped create unrealistic expectations of what pleasure looks like and sounds like you know you got to master all these various positions and and devices and and props and you know trying to rush like on a new with a new partner trying to rush through like your whole repertoire to show that like you know how to do sex yeah right versus just being present and well, and and the the give and flow because it should be always give and take power should be given back and forth you know when you're in a physical relationship with someone um and that must be something that comes up a lot right the effect of porn on a generation doused in it. I mean, you just click on a Pornhub or RedTube or Farmcom or, you know, whatever. And, you know, you're going to find something. Um, no, I think, I think it's, it's, uh, it's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. It's everything. It's like, yeah. there's so much um, availability of it. And um, I, I mean, porn's great. Porn's wonderful, but there are limitations when you base your sex life on a thing that got filmed and edited and professionals are doing it. Like, I mean, ultimately, there, there's also a huge difference between, and I try to explain this in, a lot to people, there's a huge difference between a fantasy and something you want to do in bed. And those uh, that sounds dumb, but there are certain things that are really, really beautiful and lovely to imagine. And then there's certain things that you kind of don't need to happen in real life, but are beautiful and lovely to imagine. And I think one of the best and easiest examples of this is a lot of people who have had threesomes have said things like that was actually way more difficult emotionally and just physically to maneuver around, to even schedule, to figure out the logistics of it, to just, again, go through with a partner or any kind of, you know, however mm -hmm. uh, exclusive or non-exclusive you are. A lot of people say the reality of it just doesn't stack up to the fantasy because it's you're adding another person or it's hard. Not that a lot of people haven't had great, fabulous threesomes. That's true, too. But there are certain things for people that I think that can stay as a fantasy and still have a lot of value. Like you can imagine that every mm -hmm. time you jerk off. And that's great. That's fantastic. You don't ever need to like if your partner isn't into tying you up and you love imagining it. Maybe that is a deal breaker for you. And it can be. That's totally fair, too. But maybe it's just like, this is a thing I like to think about in my head. And that's okay, too. So, like, I try to, to remind people that, like, sex is one of the few places where we really encourage adults to be imaginative. Um, almost anything else, we kind of nip that in the bud as you're a kid. Like, we're not asking people, what do you want to be when you grow up anymore? Do you have any ideas for cool products that you've thought about? Or, you know, we don't really encourage fantasy for adults, except for sexually. So like, take advantage of that, have fun imagining things, but also realize that like some things in practicality aren't as fun, <laughs> just isn't, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, some people are, 
more Sudoku than Shibari or, you know, and it's, <laughs> it's, it's not always going to be, your partner's not always going to be into these things either. And it doesn't mean that you can't on your own still have those fantasies. And it'd be awesome to talk to your partner about them too and say, yeah. Hey, we don't have to do this, but it's cool. It's, you should know that I think it's super neat or that ideally totally. it's super neat. Like, for example, like, I mean, I think the Japanese bondage Shibari is, it looks beautiful when it's shot right. Right, right by the right photographer yeah. and somebody knows what they're doing they went and they totally. learned i when i but when i actually think about doing it i'm like eh, it seems like a lot of work and just would be kind of awkward and then you're down and there it is like yeah you know but no totally i still think it's really cool to think about not quite to fetishize but to fantasize about yes right and i think like yeah. you said like a lot of things also do take work and i think like i think a lot of people also get ideas from porn that some of this stuff comes easier than it not upon also that it is easier to achieve than they might imagine. Um, and so I think, I think it's great to try new things and I'm very pro trying new things for people and talking to your partner, like you said about them. But I also think sometimes you just end up having really kind of quote unquote boring or vanilla sex for months or even years on end. And I think a lot of people judge themselves as that is boring or that is quote unquote bad that like my partner and I only do the same three positions every time but that's because it works for you too. That's fine. Yeah. And I think I think we all get in our own heads though and tell ourselves a story like I'm not having an exciting sex life or I'm not um, like I'm not having enough sex, even though you and your partner are both having sex when you want to. Again, I think it's just like you said, I think I think maybe it's porn, maybe it's the way that we can all a little bit see too much into everyone else's lives because of social media. But I do think we yeah. start telling ourselves stories about the way we have sex that aren't necessarily uh, in line with what most other people are doing. Like a lot of people write in and say like, I haven't had that many sex partners. And then I'm like, look up, there's a thing on slate where they ask everyone to write in and say like how many sex partners they had so that they could graph it basically. And you mm -hmm. can put in your number and see like, have you had more or fewer than the average person? And I've told people to go do this before. Cause I'm like, I think you might be surprised that like the number you've had is not as, low or high or crazy or whatever, whatever your judgment is, you might be surprised. Like, I think you're telling yourself a story. Slate, slate.com slash average numbers. Yeah. <laughs> you guys, you guys can figure it out. Um, I, uh, I, my, my, my thought on it, I don't have a lot of thoughts on it, but it's kind of like, if you're still laughing, you're still having good sex. <laughs> yeah. Yes. You know, if you're still kind of smiling and laughing at each other um, before, during, after a little bit, um, then you're both comfortable and you both are in a good place and your relationship is in a good place too. And when your relationship's in a good place, intimacy is probably going to be awesome. You yeah. know? Yeah. Most of the time. Um, I used to work uh, in a record store years ago. It was also an adult toy store and we sold all the goodies from like cheesy stuff like edible underwear and Kama Sutra oils to like these big to me at like 20 years old, you know, vibrating butt plugs. I'm like, God, how does that even work? <laughs> I was young. What do I know? Mm. Uh, and there would almost always be like this really awkward moment when people would be asked to like go into the back room because like the sex stuff was embarrassing or dirty somehow. And all these years later, I still look around and most of the sex stores are still pretty sleazy or pretty cheesy. I mean, you've got 
some places in San Francisco, good vibes that are kind of cool, that they're mostly um, LGBTQ, but they're more comfortable. And, and the staff is more just like, hey, what's up? I do it. They're not weird. Um, Cupid's Closet here in LA, which, but it's also kind of more like an Apple store, which is like <laughs> sterile and devoid and <laughs> of anything that resembles like a human soul, let alone sex. But I get that's why, you know, there's a, there's a reason for that. Why can't we do better when it comes to sex shops? Why can't they be normal and just kind of cool and approachable? Like, why can't it be like a cool record store or a coffee because shop? Because we're not cool about sex. Like, I think all of us are really wound up about it. Like, I know, I mean, I now, uh, for especially for GQ and the interviews I do there, um, I talk to people on the phone at least once a week or once every other week. And I have to ask them questions like, have you ever had anal sex? What is your, the best sex you've ever had? What's the worst? But like, did she make you come, et cetera, et cetera. And I've had to get over myself about saying so many things out loud. And it wasn't just <laughs> interviews. Like if you look at my writing on GQ, like there's things about anal pleasure where I had to go interview multiple experts on prostate orgasms. And so like, I had to just get over myself at some point. I had to be like, this is your job and you need to be able to say the word prostate without pausing. Um, <laughs> the only word that I still can't do without pausing is the word nipples, which I think is an awful word, but I just can't get over myself on that one. But what's wrong with nipples? I hate is the way it looks. Much. I like, it- I feel like yeah. I could never, I could never get over myself on that one. But I'm, okay. I do think all of us have this like third grader inside of us. That's going to hear the word penis and still giggle. Like there's like this, like, m- like grain of sand left of like an immature kid. That's like, yes. this is at least funny, if not embarrassing or shameful. And I think we all fall a little bit on that spectrum somewhere. And for some people it's deeply shameful and embarrassing and like they would never even walk into a sex shop. And for some people it's funny and like a little like goofy and we can make fun of it. But there's still almost a level of uncomfortability there in a, in, a, in a more chill way, I feel like. If you sat down with your friends, it would be very weird if someone was like, so what porn do you watch? And then everyone were honest about it. I think that would just not happen. You know, like I think you might be honest about parts of it, but I don't think everyone at the table is going to be like, here's exactly what I'm into. I'm totally willing to show you my search history. I mean, I think all of us still hold our cards pretty close to us because there's a lot of shame and judgment that we're afraid of, even if it's not necessarily there anymore or in the circles that you're in or the people you're talking to. I mean, I think people even have a hard time with their own partners being like, I'm into X, Y, Z, let's do it. I mean, all of us are just scared that we're going to be judged. And it's like, you probably won't be, hopefully you won't be, but still there. There you go. I, I, that's it. It's, it's fear of being judged. Absolutely. You know, putting aside for a moment, the obvious, um, cultural conditioning when it comes to faith and religion, which I'm not maligning right now. I'm just, I'll, I'll malign that later, but not on this <laughs> podcast, unless I leave that in. Um, but I, I do feel like, God, it would be so great as a world if we could just get over that a little bit. It would be great. Well, it'd be great in a lot of ways. It, I'm certain that violence against women would decrease if we had a normalized relationship and conversations around sex. A lot of violence against the LGBTQ community because people can admit that they're part of that community, right? Because they can talk about it. Yes. These are conversations that are happening younger and younger ages, not in Florida, apparently. <laughs> I think these are good things. These are good signs. Um, maybe the sex shops will come up. May, it will catch up. Yeah. And, and the packaging, packaging has gotten better. 
<laughs> just all bad. Now it's kind of can be just like a you're buying something from Apple, right? Like exactly. it's a it's a mouse. No, it's a it's a that's not a mouse. It's a vibrating mouse. <laughs> oh oh okay, I see. Um, that reminds me, did it ever work out with the um, Apple Genius Bar guy? With the Genius Bar guy, no. Yeah, no, no? never. No. Okay, you never you never went and, and like talked to him. No. Yeah. All right. <laughs> okay. Why do Apple keyboards still suck so much? That's what I want to know. Why does it sound like everyone who uses an Apple keyboard is fake typing? Because they're not real keyboards. I don't know, but everyone yeah. sounds like they're fake typing. But it's so funny. I love it. But I, every single time, I'm like, that really sounds fake. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we have work to do. If you're a sex shop owner out there and you want some uh, want some advice on how to make it super nice, or call me, I'll do it for free. It'd be free advice, no problem, <laughs> no problem at all. So, where is your? Do you, you know, you're doing this for a career. Where's your passion for writing about sex and sex advice? In terms of, do you have? Is part of you like God? I, I really want. I have a mission to to normalize this stuff, or is it more like ah? I just feel really good helping people through their hiccups. I think I like the second one a lot better. I like feeling almost like someone's friend and we're sitting down to talk and I'm like, oh my God, why are you doing that? God bless you. But what are you doing? Um, Cause again, I think, I mean, like I grew up in a large family. I have a lot of sisters, a lot of, a lot of brothers too, but, um, and I feel like I just grew up talking about things and no one in my family can stop talking. We're all very Italian. Um, but also just very little was off the table for us. So I think, mm. I got used to being able to say vulnerable things and talk about vulnerable things. And then through that, I think people came to know that they could say things to me. Um, even within my own family, I'm always the one getting like my parents secrets and they'll be like, Oh, Hey, I did this when I was younger. And I'm like, Oh boy, that's a lot of information. Um, that's in the next book. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I think, I think, I hope everyone gets more and more sex positive as we go. I, I do have concerns about, I mean, like you alluded to with Florida, um, there's definitely like a lot of anti-trans and anti just any kind of queer or LGBTQ um, communities. There's so many bills coming up that are homophobic and transphobic and just horrendous. Mm -hmm. And um, and I, I mean, like we can't even pass like the Violence Against Women Acts and things like that. Like we do have all the or equal rights, um, you know, bills. Yeah, we're just we're failing in a lot of ways. So I obviously hope that we move forward as a society in all of these arenas. Um, and I don't know that my sex writing is going to, to do that, but I do think, I, I mean, I don't think that's necessarily where the needle is going to move and that's not necessarily a goal of mine, but I like moments where I can make one person feel like they're less alone or that the path forward is a little bit more clear or that like we can handle this. I love, when people feel like, okay, we've got this, like, it's not, it's a mess right now. That's okay. But there's a path forward. We can, we can go forward. Um, I think, you know, I, I hope for all of us that you just find people in your life like that, that, you know, just, you can help one person at a time or two people at a, you know, it doesn't have yeah. to be global. It can just, just a little. If it's a threesome, you're helping three at a exactly. time, right? Three people. Five some, <laughs> whatever. Um, yeah. But, but remember too, that when, when someone wants, when someone becomes an advocate, an outspoken advocate, an activist for one of these issues, they have to feel really confident in themselves to do that well. And part of that confidence may have come from an article they read 
in GQ or a piece of advice they got from somewhere where something clicked and like, oh, that makes sense. I can stand taller now. You know, this person gets me. You can, you, you'll never know. <laughs> you'll probably never know that you were part of somebody's evolution into activism or into being a, a strong, you know, well-spoken advocate. But I would say don't overlook the fact that you're part of that chain, that you're part that your writing, that your advice is part of the process for some people at some time. And especially when you have such a large audience like you do. I'm not saying you should, you know, feel that great about yourself. <laughs> Go and check a little bit, you know, but no, it, it is important, I think, uh, that we recognize that we're all part of that process for each other, or we can be. A advice columnists, you know, where would we be without Miss Manners, for example? <laughs> exactly. You know, we, we would know how to set our tables. I wrote about this yeah. a little bit in the book, um, but I do think like the, the other, a lot of women online who said things that were loud and even annoying and obnoxious at times um, and were very unafraid, very much changed the course of what I did with my life and how I treat people and what I believe in now. And so I think... I'm never not aware of how influential spaces like Twitter can be when people talk about you don't change someone's mind on the internet. I think that's untrue. But I do think, I guess my thoughts on what you said are, it's pretty easy for me as like a middle-class white woman to not be afraid of things and not be afraid of saying things because the consequences are by and large very little for me. And I have safety nets and I have, you know, ways of taking care of myself. So I think I hope that whenever I say something and I feel like I'm not afraid to say something and I feel like I lose very little saying something, I hope it just kind of widens the sphere of who can say it or who feels like they can say it. And then that cascades. That's my hope more than, Amen to that. you know, like feeling like what I said was so perfect. It's not like I think that the things I'm saying are good. It's more like I invite you to also feel unafraid to, to do things, especially the people that are low risk, you know? Yeah. I loved it when you when you wrote that, when you wrote that, because uh, it's a pet peeve of mine as well, that you can't change people's minds on Twitter. Yeah, you, you actually can. You know, you can be part of a conversation. Maybe you won't get credit for it in that moment. It's kind of mm -hmm. like the thing where they say it takes seven people to make a movie recommendation before somebody actually goes and or or the seventh ad you see on a bus stop. You don't know which ad made you go buy, you know, the condoms <laughs> um, or maybe it's your maybe it's your seven kids. That, you know. <laughs> but somewhere along the way, you have to be hit by a message a number of times before your mind gets changed. So yeah, you might not win the Twitter argument. You might not get the satisfaction, but you're part of nudging someone provided that you're not being a dick, you know, and that you actually have a reasoned argument. Um, and if I recall correctly, you mentioned that in talking about finding when it's appropriate for you to have your voice and when adding your voice isn't the right time. You, you had this moment where your horizons got broadened uh, by the mic. Brown murder in Ferguson, right? Yes. In I mean, that 2013, was like 2014, 2014. Your privilege, your race consciousness, I'm trying to remember right now um, what you wrote, you know, really came to light for you, right? And you're like, oh, then then I realized like this isn't adding my voice. This is where I this is where you learn to really listen and pay attention to what was going around going on in the world for you. So I was I, I wondering if that was part of what opened you up to the rest of these other issues. Was it the the Mike Brown thing that was your first like real big social conscious, like, wow, there's more out there that I can do. I'm hesitant to say that I do that much. I think I, I try to share things for people and, you know, listen and be aware. But I mean, when it comes to doing things, there's lots more to do. But I think 
Mike Brown really hit home for me quite, I mean, quite literally it was in my hometown. So that kind of changed how I saw things. Cause I would see things on Twitter and then I would hear things from people living in St. Louis that were vastly different. Um, and I think I was aware, I know I was aware, I mean, that happened when I was in college and I was aware before then of a lot of gender issues, but I don't think I was being very, um, intersectional about anything. I wasn't very aware of, I was loosely aware of broader racial issues and broader disability issues and broader LGBTQ issues and the ways in which they interlock. But I wasn't making, I wasn't making much effort to get more and more aware. I was just as aware as I was through osmosis of the world. I wasn't Mm -hmm. going out of my way to learn new things or to listen to new voices. And so I definitely think Mike Brown to me sticks out. Mike Brown's death sticks out as a moment where I really remember being shocked out of, you know, thinking certain things and thinking in certain ways. But I also think around that time, as you said, I, I got very angry and loud at certain times and about certain things, especially gender issues. And then I kind of slowly realized that me again, as a white woman who has a lot of resources and is fine in a lot of situations, it's important for me to show up and do things, but it's not always important for me to add my voice to, to things. Like a lot of people have already said the things I'm saying have said them much more eloquently and are saying them from experience uh, rather than me being like, Oh yeah, I read it in this book and now I should get to say it and I should get a tweet about it and I should get attention for having been an advocate for it or whatever. Um, So I learned a lot more about like, just not talking, not taking up space and not feeling like I was an authority on every topic. You know, I think that's partially the world and the society and the moment we were in, but also part of just being 23 and being like, oh, I'm not the most important person on earth. It's hard because you talked about the beginning of our conversation, how we sculpt our personas online. And I know that there's the pressure to, you you want to make sure that people know that you're, that you feel this way. You're an advocate for that. You're this for that. Like, you know, the Ukraine thing, like, ah, you know, and here's how I feel about that. Because if you don't speak up, you're afraid of people thinking that you don't care. Right. Mm -hmm. Or that you're not plugged in. And, but like you said, though, you are using other people's words, right? So we're all sort of jockeying to make sure that we are showing and displaying and peacocking all the things that are important to us. Right. And it's hard to do that for most of us that aren't for a lot of us that aren't living through these issues uh, to, to, to be the experts, right? So we quote the experts. That's a really good point. I just encourage everyone to, rather than repeating stuff, to like retweet and reshare and credit people as much as you can. And when you have an idea or you're like, oh, my heart's breaking for the people in Ukraine, which is true. Like, how can you, instead of almost like centering yourself, which we like, that's natural and normal. It's not like an evil impulse. Obviously it's a kind and nice impulse in a lot of ways, but like, how can you share stories from people in Ukraine or how can you like find people in Ukraine or also just knowing like sometimes even if you risk other people thinking you don't care, they're wrong about you. You know, like you, you can just sometimes sit with the knowledge, like I don't have to prove it. I don't have to prove that I care the most about this global situation that I don't really know anything about. I don't have to, you know, hopefully my, other actions and my actions offline will, will right that, you know, and I think it's, it's yeah. hard. It's hard to get away from the impulse to be like, I care. I promise I care. And he, you know, here's what to do. And he, I think it's hard to get away from that, but it is, I, it's very hard to get away from it because 
we do care and we feel like if we tell others we care that that'll be part of a tidal wave of dissent for example right online i just i just i just don't know that um the world leaders are listening to to facebook uh posts (laughs) i'm just i'm kind of doubting it kind of doubting (laughs) lightening it up uh real quick a couple of episodes ago on this podcast, uh, you got to check her out because her her TikTok, the the little off the cuff pieces she does, you'll love them. Uh, the amazing Ariana and the Rose, uh, New York musician, uh, asked me about the worst date I'd ever been on, and I had a real boring answer, but because um, I just didn't have like a, a horror story. Uh, and reading your GQ articles, I came across a really funny first person description of the worst sex someone ever had. Uh, I don't know how to make this fit into the context of this podcast, <laughs> but I mean, one of us should read it. Um, you probably don't have it in front of you. So um, it's from Sex Lives, a former football player who wears ladies' underwear. Love this piece. I'm just going to, sorry, listeners, you don't like listening to me read. I do it too much on this podcast, but fuck it. All right. For extra protection, we got condoms with spermicidal lubricant on them. We had no idea what we were doing. There was no foreplay. She was tense. She was tight. It was never going to work right. So I was like, I've watched porn. I'll go down on her. And, and this is backing up for a second. This was a um, bisexual man, right? Or gay man. He, he's gay, but he's just kind of like. I think he's bisexual, if I remember. He's bisexual. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I was like, I've watched porn. I'll go down on her and maybe that will help her loosen up. The spermicidal lubricant turned my entire tongue and mouth and lips numb. My lips swelled up to about the size of a clementine, you know, those little oranges. It turns out I'm horrendously allergic to that, and she was also allergic to it. Her vagina swelled up. It started, like, turning inside out. We were both Googling, and we each took, like, six Benadryl trying to get it to go down, and we ended up going to urgent care. They gave her an actual shot in her lady bits to help bring it back to normal, and they told me to just wait it out. So that was probably the worst sex I ever had. That's terrible sex. Can I tell you, that person was this, I did two interviews in one day because I, you know, I spread them out, but I did two interviews in one day and that was the second person of the day. And the first person of the day had a remarkably similar story. Like really not kidding you. It was so similar. And for both of them, it was their first time having sex or first time having sex in this case, their first time having sex with a woman. And in the other person's case, it was their first time having sex. (laughs) They lost their virginity. And they had like a very, very similar story of being allergic to the condom and finding out and it being awful. And, um, and like, it was like a fire and ice condom too, or something. I can't even remember, but both of them had such similar stories. So that by the time I heard this story, I was like, what is happening? Why did I hear this story twice today? So that was one of those incredible moments where I was like, you know what? I can tell you very confidently you are not alone because earlier today (laughs) I heard someone else with this same story. Oh, that maybe reading it, my inside voice is funnier than reading it out loud to you guys. But I thought that was really funny. But uh, he counters this with the best sex he's ever had, which I thought was a really sweet story. Do you want to read that one? Sure. I okay. 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 The best sex I ever had was in Lyon, France. I was there during grad school, and I went out with a friend of mine, and I headed off with this fifty-year-old guy, like the most beautiful older Frenchman. I'm super into older dudes. I don't know why. I have a great relationship with with my dad. Everything's normal. Nothing bad there. I guess because they know what they're doing. I don't know. 
anyway, he had this boat and there was this canal system like in Amsterdam. And he took me back to his boat and we sailed through the canals. We went on a few dates and then we went back to his boat one night after dinner and the canal was beautiful and we had wine on the deck and it was totally deserted. So we ended up having sex on top of the boat under the stars in Southern France. And it was pretty much the hottest experience of my life. The most romantic sex of my life. It was also really good sex. <laughs> I mean, that's great. Like, I don't know how that fits in. Or maybe it's just I enjoyed reading two great sex stories. <laughs> but I, I I just, I love that. And I think that reading those stories, if you like, just I'm a completely cisgender white male. I'm pretty just as straight as they come. <laughs> um, but I find it remarkably romantic and beautiful when any two people have great sex. I don't, you know, it doesn't matter when two people have great sex, I just think it's a beautiful thing, right? And in my super nicer world, a lot of people can feel the same way. A lot of people can be, oh, that does sound great. It doesn't mean that you want to have anal sex because you're a guy and it's like, I don't want to have sex with another man, but you can still appreciate what happened. You can you can find the common thread there and go, oh yeah, man, that does sound fantastic, right? <laughs> instead of going, instead of cringing, going, oh, that's meh. There's too much of that, right? And I don't know, ever since I was maybe too young, I've had a real strong desire to see talking about sex and and experiences normalized, right? And so these kind of articles do that. And I think it's fantastic. GQ has a, this is GQ, right? Yeah. Yeah. GQ has a big readership, you know, and uh, I just think it's great. So thanks for for being part of putting that out there. Thanks on behalf of the Super Nice Club. Well, thank you. I love doing those articles. They're very fun. And before I forget, before I forget, I want to circle back to your book real quick because we did forget to do one thing, which was mentioned. The one thing that you really want straight cis men like me to get out of your book. And that one thing, folks, fellas, guys, bros, bros, you've got to take better photos for your dating app. Yeah. Right. (laughs) You've just got to put better photos uh, spend the money, a couple hundred bucks, as Sophia puts it, to get somebody to take a bunch of great um, headshots, uh, face. Basically, just like some yeah. candid, nice, in-focus photos will go so much further than like a witty caption. Like seriously, it will make you look more attractive. I, it, It's a dumb thing, but bad photos just... They don't work. No one swipes right, right? I think right. Yes, no one swipes right on people that have like a blurry photo from that looks like a disposable camera that got waterlogged. Like, no, come on. It looks like you don't care. It's like do do everything well, right? And it looks like if you can't do that, you're probably not going to do the other things. Well, we just you also know? have so much access to good photos now, and it's so easy to take good photos that I think it's like. Okay, well, where are your good photos? Do you have no friends around you that can help <laughs> you? Like, please, please have someone call a phone a friend, please. What do you think about the 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 guy hiking on the trail, like down on one knee with his arm around his husky shot? That's fine to me. I'm not that into the next to cars shot. Um, I'm not into gun pictures and I'm not into like fish pictures. Those are personal preferences. I'm sure there's ladies out there that love those three things, but I feel like that, Oh, smoking pictures. I'm like, we're adults now. It's not that cool that you vaped. Like just, you know, I feel like the best things you can possibly do are like, just show off candid, nice times that you did a thing. 
And that thing can be like, I'm being goofy in the aisle of a target. It doesn't have to be, you know, like I'm having a nice expensive dinner on the third level of the Eiffel tower, but just like, just give a sense that you have like a fun or nice life going on and take a nice picture of it. So that's the tip. Take nice pictures and also bring your, bring your witty game, right? Bring yeah. your, I mean, ask questions. Yeah, but like actually the real thing that I hope all cis straight men learn how to do, uh, just ask questions. Like, for every question that you get asked, you should ask at least one back. That's just like a minimum thing. Uh, you will go so far in the dating world, straight says guys, like so much further than you would even imagine if you just ask like a couple more questions. And guys, the dating bar for is so low. Like for guys, like it's really low. You don't have to do much to kind of stand out a little bit. So ask a couple questions, um, you know, An info brush your teeth. Yeah. Have yeah. <laughs> is separate from your shower towel for people to wash their hands on if they come to your house. Yeah. Small things. Small things. It's not yeah. hard. It's not hard. <laughs> you can keep your maroon colored sheets. It's okay. Every single space uh, man is just has like maybe <laughs> your maroon sheets and that's fine. We'll let you have it. So you're also a comedian, stand-up career you've been playing with. What's going on with that? What's going on with your stand-up? I kind of stand-up because of the beautiful pandemic that we all went through. And I used to work nights, which put a kink in it. But hopefully now things are starting up again. Hopefully I'll start doing that. But honestly, I've just been writing, which is a lot more pandemic safe. So, you know. So you're writing on shows? No, I right now I'm just writing, I'm working on another book, a fiction book. And then I'm also writing oh. articles and just kind of paying the bills right now. But is there kink in the fiction, in the fiction book? There is, it's at least mildly horny, medium, uh, mildly horny. It's, it's horny. Okay. Is it going to have like one of those romance novel things with the guy with the flowing so. hair okay, that kind of, of cover genre i hope that fabio is on the cover <laughs> yes all right make that a thing <laughs> yeah it just, can be just just, put that out there okay like does anybody out there joke? know fabio yeah yeah all right so and then lastly i think so many questions but we're i'm just gonna go with one which is has anyone else asked you about david spade's personal assistant Oh, no, that's so funny. She's the nicest woman alive. Um, I hope I'm not blowing up her spot by saying that she used to be the personal assistant to Meg Ryan um, for a long time and then went to David Spade, which must have been a hilarious jump, like two small blonde women. Um, just kidding. I love David Spade. He's, but, um, she is the nicest and most patient person, which I think you have to be if you're a personal assistant. She's always in such a great mood and she just helps him do all kinds of things. Like she introduced him to Amazon and he thought that it was so incredible that he was getting two day shipping and he like announced it to all of us. And we were all like, yeah, no, we all know about Amazon. (laughs) So she just helps him out a lot, but she's genuinely the sweetest person. So, so you won't get why I ask folks unless you read, well, this is exhausting. So, which has a money back guarantee, by the way. Did I mention that? Yeah. Once you read that, you'll get why I asked. Um, so we do this thing with our guests where they get to issue a challenge to the, the listeners and the members of the Super Nice Club, which you are now a member of, by the way. Okay. What's up? Welcome. And it's something where they can do something to make the world a little nicer or the world a little nicer. It can be a small challenge, like a little task, or it could be something, you know, really big. Throw something out for us. Okay. I think my first thought is... 
since I've already challenged men, straight cis men to ask questions, I'll do a more universal challenge. And I would challenge everyone to read porn or something horny or erotic rather than watching it and see if it changes anything for them. Because I think when we talk about like the proliferation of porn, I think sometimes there's better or more um, wholesome and kind maybe is the right word. Mm-hmm. Porn that can be read. So if you haven't tried it, I encourage you to try to read something corny rather than watching it. Do you have any, if not specific recommendations, uh, some places where people who, who yeah, so, just I mean, start to find that stuff? Like if you're going for straight, just the same thing as like watching a porn video. If you're going for just erotica, mm-hmm. lit erotica has mm-hmm. a ton of it. So you can go there, click on the categories. The same thing you would do with porn you're just reading it it seems like it's more work it's really not this isn't like shakespeare um it's beautiful great job everyone who's working there but it's easy um but then if you're looking for more like a story read a romance novel like i it they're the most popular genre for a reason it's enjoyable it's easy it's again it's not like reading heart of darkness you're not being challenged necessarily you can find easy quick reads but I really strongly recommend it. I feel like it it's a way to talk about sex with someone almost without actually having to bridge the gap and be vulnerable and bring up what you're into. Um, mm-hmm. So it's a good entry point for a lot of people. Okay. Um, challenge accepted. And I will add Lit Erotica to the show note links, folks, in case you're driving and like, ah, I don't want to forget that. <laughs> um, yeah, it's in the show notes. You'll be able to find it there. And then lastly, Sophia Benoit, you get to be the host for just one question. You get to ask me what, ask me a question. Okay. Any question. Any question. Yeah. Any question. Okay. Um, I want to go with the. I'm ner- I'm nervous though, given who you are. No, no, no. I, I want to do. Ah, no. <laughs> no I, I think if anything, I'll disappoint you because my my questions are to people are always weird, rather than like you'd think I would do like what's the best sex you've ever had or anything. But if if you had to give your kids a book to read. And that you guarantee that they would read it. What book would you give them? Mm. Uh, I have given Phantom Tollbooth to my kids, but no, it wouldn't be that one. Hmm. I, since I have boys, um, I really loved the book, and I know that he's been he's been canceled. Um, but Raul Dahl's Danny, Champion of the World, oh, yeah. uh, is such such a cool coming of age like single dad with boy book um given the age of my kids uh probably danny champion of the world okay just comes to mind there are much more heavy hitter books i mean i just gave my 19 year old a copy of uh sapiens oh. uh all rares sapiens i mean I, he'll never read it and i gave it to him in graphic novel form <laughs> and he left it at the house to go when he went back to college <laughs> like ah, dick justice that's you you <laughs> left the book that was your christmas present um <laughs> Is anything more humbling than trying to get a teenage boy a gift? Nothing in my life. My brother, who's a teenager at the same age, I'm like, this is, this is the most humbled I've ever felt in my life. They don't care. They don't care about anything you do. They're like... Cash. Cash. All cash rules everything around me. That's all you were <laughs> given him. Yeah, exactly. Um, my mistake to give Justice a book. No. Uh, yeah, I don't know why that came to my mind. I think it's... You know why? And actually, I do know why. Because it's a book... Uh, I had not a lot of visits with my dad when, when my parents split and we read that book together during one or maybe a few, you know, how memories get yeah. mashed together. Um, 
memories are the memories of the last time you remembered it. Yeah. Didn't you write that? Yeah, there we go. Um, so I think it has some sort of tie to me, to my own dad, you know, that kind yeah. of thing. I'm not saying it's a piece of literary masterwork or anything, but it's pretty good. It's pretty damn good. I haven't read that one. I'm going to, this is, I'll put it on my list. All right. Sophia, thank you for talking with me, for, for sharing yourself and for writing your book and doing the work that you do. It's, it's important work. Yeah. And I hope listeners that you agree. And I hope that you go check out Sophia's, she has a a super fancy website, like (laughs) all the tech bells and whistles and it's all, you got to go to the website. Um, I don't even know how to pronounce it. One but, for uh, no dad.com. Uh, oh, no dad. Uh, what does that even? Oh, I don't get it. Follower, no dad. It's probably some like it's, it's generational golf that I can't. No, climb. just because someone told me to get a Twitter and I said, my dad will disown me if I get a Twitter. And they said, well, I'll, and I said, and no one will follow me. And they said, I'll follow you. And I said, great, I'll have one follower and no dad. And so then that became my Twitter handle and that became my website. There's no way I would have gotten it. No way, but thanks. Now we got <laughs> All right. No, seriously, thanks. And welcome to the Super Nice Club. Thank you so much for having me. So there you have it. Episode number 96 with the super nice Sophia Benoit. As always, I hope it was worth your time. Hope you had a good time. And, uh, you know, hope you learned something. Yeah. If you did, why don't you let us know? Write me a letter. I don't want an email or a text any of that kind of stuff, write me a letter in the mail. Could you do that? 1001 Kenfield Avenue, LACA 90049. Somebody write me a letter. I want to see some stamps, some cool stamps. Have some style when you pick out your stamps. Don't just get the, the ones that come printed or pre-printed or stamps.com. Or I want to see dinosaurs or dildos or whatever's on stamps these days. Dinosaurs and dildos would be cool. Uh, anyway, check out Sophia's book, Money Back Guarantee. If you don't like it, we'll buy it from you. Yeah. And um, check out her GQ, her bustle, her advice. Take her advice. Don't take her advice. Give somebody else advice. I don't know. Let's just talk to each other about sex and fat phobia and all the things that Sophia is talking with us about. It would be a really great thing if we just started talking more, listening more. Talk and listen and talk and listen. They're related, these concepts, talking and listening. They really are. Episode 97 in two weeks is with Bandai Dig. They're young. They're cool. They're scrappy. They are loose buttons. So hang tight for that. And until then, everyone, I love you a whole ton. Do your Kegels. I'm doing mine right now. I'm always doing mine. And uh, stay nice.
everything you know And all we ask is that you just become 10% more nice And all we ask is that you just become 10% more nice All we ask is that you just become 10% more nice.